Welcome to the Star Love Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Beck, the Oracle in New Orleans, founder of Inner Makeup Astrology. To learn more about what I do, visit innermakeup.net. And tonight, because it is this evening, because I have Terry McKinnell on, and Terry is in Australia, and I'm here in the States in the lovely Crescent City, New Orleans, Louisiana. Terry was born in Sydney, Australia in the 50s and is a self-taught Western and Vedic astrologer who's been studying astrology since the early 70s. But, and this is in part why I'm very interested to have Terry on this evening. In 1987, he came up with the initial inspiration for research into the astrological ages. And many of you, even you know, those of you listening who aren't necessarily that versed in the deeper, more complex aspects of astrology will remember the song, The Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. But the question is, when when is the Age of Aquarius? When did that actually happen? So, um, or is it happening? Did it happen? Is it yet to happen? So in 2000, um, Terry returned to this research uh, after a three-year writing pro- project, excuse me, published his first book, on the subject in 2011, The Dawning, Shedding New Light on the Astrological Ages. He maintains a number of blogs, including Demystifying the Aquarian Age, plus a website dedicated to the Astrological Ages at www.macro-astrology.com. He's currently writing two books, one on Vedic astrology oriented towards Western astrologer, and also on the sub-ages of the Astrological Ages. So, Terry, how goes it? Uh, it all goes very well. Um, we're, it's not evening here. It's 11.10 in the morning, uh, and we're just moving into winter. So it's starting to get a bit cool, and I'm starting to pine for Bali, which is my second home. Oh. Uh, and I can't go to Bali at the moment due to COVID-19. So you're stuck down under. How is life down under? <laughs> Uh, well, it's not like America. We, I think, a hundred people have died. I think about a hundred people have died of COVID nineteen in Australia. It's not really. Uh, I mean, we've got lockdown and restricted things happening. Uh, not severe lockdown, uh, but uh, uh, we haven't really had like a like a traumatic time like the United States or sure. England or Italy. Yes. Sure. So it's all so it's all rather mellow, uh, and uh, everyone's just working their way through it. Sure. And just so whenever this uh, we're going to we'll be releasing this podcast in the next few months. But today is, you know, it's uh, May 19th. So that's the date we're recording this. But OK, but, you know, regardless of, you know, because the astrological ages do involve everybody. But how about yourself personally you enjoying life down under? I mean, I've never been to Australia. I'd love to get there one day. But how you know, how is life in Australia? Oh, well, uh, life in Australia is probably like uh, your West Coast. Okay. Uh, I, did, I did live in California for two years when I was a kid, actually went to middle school in California. Mm. Uh, and there's not much difference between West Coast United States and Australia as far as culture and society goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, though it's a little bit more relaxed here. Uh, people aren't as there's not such a there's not a clear cut political divide like in America. Mm. Uh, and uh, politics is not the subject of conversation if you meet someone in Australia. Uh, and people are uh, probably be a little bit more chilled out, but that's not to say that I don't love uh, going to America. I, I probably because I lived there when I was a kid, I have a big affinity to the United States, and I 
thoroughly enjoyed going there. And I think the last time we went there, about four or five years ago, we had a delightful time in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, Santa. Yes. <laughs> I and, love uh, Santa. Oh, yes. I love Santa Fe because I do have a background in classical music. So for a lot of years, I had many friends who participated in the Santa Fe Opera Festival and the, just the opera under the stars and the whole town itself, you know, tons of art. It's in, in the, the, the the topography of the desert. So well, why don't you tell me a little bit about that, your experience in Santa Fe, it's such a magical place. Uh, it was. Um, well, it was just, I mean, it was just very, very enjoyable, all the adobe uh, uh, construction, especially mm -hmm. in the inner city. Uh, we, uh, we just kind of soaked it up. I mean, I like cultural kind of places. Uh, where I go to in Bali is, is not the beaches and the tourist places, it's a place called Ubud, which is the cultural capital of Bali. And so there's something about culture that's like when it's rich and colorful that I am attracted to. Uh, and I also recently had the same experience as I went to the um, Jaipur in India in January mm. uh, and really enjoyed, not the cities, you never, uh, Asian cities are never enjoyable, but uh, I went to a place called Pushkar, which is on a big so-called holy lake. And it was just fantastic. So, you know, Santa Fe, uh, we we really enjoyed it. And we hopefully we will have some time uh, again in the United States. Uh, we, we collect places that we would like to live for three months. And mm. we would like to live for three months in San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, most likely. Uh, that's where I lived when I was a kid. Uh, and, uh, and But I also like to live in Istanbul. I mean, Istanbul is mm. just a stuff. It's just uh, probably my the most stunning city I've ever been to in the world. So mm -hmm. we, we do like places that are kind of rich in culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, and we do hope that we get back to Santa Fe. Mm. Well, if, if you like colorful cities, you have to at some point make it to my dear New Orleans because it's one of the most colorful cities in the world. <laughs> uh, to... yeah, no, no, New Orleans is definitely on the map. We, uh, <laughs> it's always been there. It, probably been in the United States uh probably after San Francisco not even after I'm not meaning like designating it like a hierarchy but you know <laughs> we would probably go to New Orleans before we go to Santa Fe again mm. all right and well, I know, yeah and I like the I like the French influence that I see oh I well we could you know what I'll have to have a whole you know, podcast just about, you know what, that could be a fun podcast, uh, just astrologers visiting New Orleans, like that would, because <laughs> it, it is, the, it's the Crescent City, you know, and it's, it, anyways, we could, we could go on and on and on about that, but how did you get into astrology amidst all of your, you know, um, designs on the world? I mean, how did, how did you get your start in astrology? Uh, well, I got into it quite young, I was about 19, uh, and this was, you know, in the, uh, like early 70s, it may have even actually been 1971. And I remember uh, I was living in Sydney at the time, and I remember going to some friend's house uh, or someone's house. I went with a friend to someone, and there was a little booklet on the table. It was probably only 20, 30 pages long. It was just very simple, not even a hard cover. It was just like a booklet, and it was describing the 12 signs of the zodiac. Now, I had never encountered anything about astrology in my life at that point other than those little daily things you get in the newspapers those little daily horoscopic mm -hmm. forecasts 
And so I picked up this book and it probably had about a half a page or three quarters of a page per zodiacal sign. So I sort of, and I knew that I was a Sagittarius because my mother had told me. Uh, and so I looked, I went over and read the, the, the paragraph or two on Sagittarius and I read, it resonated with me and I just thought, wow, that's stunning. Uh, and so when we went back, when I went back home that night, I was living in that stage like a little commune because this was the hippie era. You've got to remember mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, what, what Americans call the age of Aquarius. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, and probably before we had something to smoke or whatever, uh, I said to someone, I said to the guys in the house, wow, I said, I found this book and I was reading about Sagittarius and it was amazing. And they said to me, oh, you should get a book on astrology. And I said, a book on astrology? I just didn't have a clue that there was such a thing. It never, I just didn't know anything about astrology at all. So they gave me the name. They told me I should go down to a bookshop in Sydney. There was one bookshop in Sydney uh, run by the Theosophical Society, uh, and it sold books on mysticism and spirituality and astrology, which was new to me. So they sent me down there, and there was this whole few bookshelves on astrology. I just couldn't believe it. Uh, and I ended up buying, I, I, having looked through, I, I, I bought a book about, and I didn't even know, sorry, at that time, there was such a thing as a horoscope. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't know that there was a chart. And so all of a sudden, in maybe that hour I was there, I discovered there were horoscopes. And then I found a book that explained you how to draw up your horoscope mm -hmm. if you had an ephemeris, which I had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. And I found on another shelf an ephemeris that was the ephemeris for the, all of the, the 20th century. But it only showed the position of all the planets on the first day of the month, of every month. Mm -hmm. So armed with that ephemeris, and then armed with that uh, book about how to draw up a horoscope, because this is before computers. Mm -hmm. um, I went home, and but fortunately, I have a mathematical background. Mm -hmm. So I was able to work my way through it. But the interesting thing was, and I had my first epiphany, first of many millions of epiphanies in astrology, <laughs> when I read through the book, like there was a basic cursory uh, uh, description of sign, when I came to the sign Aquarius, it just really resonated with me. I just, mm. wow, this is just a, such a sign. So when, by, it took me, I think, one or two days to figure out how to draw up a horoscope. Mm -hmm. And when I drew up mine and worked, you know, using sidereal time and offsets and all these mm -hmm. different uh, table of houses and whatever, bingo, there it was. I was sitting there with Aquarius rising. And that, ah. was, my, and that was my first epiphany. And so I knew that, I was onto something um, interesting here. Okay, so that's interesting. I mean, there's a lot there, and we'll go back over some stuff. But so you said you have a mathematical background. So what other things have occupied your time besides astrology? You said mathematics. What else, you know, over the years besides astrology have you been, you know, doing? Uh, well, strange to say, there are two main things that I've had focused on my life from basically the same time within a year of me within a year or year and a half or even maybe two years of me stumbling into astrology um friends of mine uh got involved with uh, uh, like a teacher that was called uh that in those days was called miraji but these days is called prem rawat and prem rawat teaches or doesn't teach he shows any person 
how to contact the life force within them, that life force that generates in the universe, that keeps that created the whatever you want to call it. There's a life force, and that exists in every one of us. And he will show you how to connect with yourself to that life force, which is not a philosophical or religious thing. It's a it's a very uh, deep personal experience. And uh, I got involved in that in 1973, and so I have probably spent equal time involved mm. both pursuits ever since except astrology really is intellectual whereas mm. that connecting to your true nature uh, is not an intellectual thing it's an experiential thing uh, mm -hmm. and that's probably that they're the two main influences in my life mm. Mm. that's very interesting so Okay, so you would say astrology is more an intellectual pursuit. And so, sorry, could you repeat the term again? I'm not sure I got that. That it's connecting with life force. But what was that again? Uh, well, yeah, when I, yeah, in my in my non-astrology life, my focus, as I said, is on uh, is is on connecting with the life force in in me. Uh, now you can find out about this quite easily if you go to Words of Peace, which is like the website Words of Peace or TPRF that. Uh, or Prem Rawat. Actually, if you just Google on Prem Rawat, which is P-R-E-M, and the second word R-A-W-A-T, okay. uh, anyone can see him giving talks about this experience that you can have. Mm. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, what he's talking about in completely ties in with the sub-ages of the astrological ages. It just so happens that what people don't realize is that at this time in history or this time in the cycle of ages is the best time for a person to connect with their true self, their true inner self mm. or source of reality. Uh, and so, uh, but it's also, it just so happens that the sign that rules that, which is Scorpio, is also a sky, uh, is also one of the key signs associated with astrology. And they both <laughs> seem to peak even now and historically uh, in, in, at the same time. You know, I think we should get into this because your big thing is, would you say, your really big thing is the astrological ages. So when we're talking about, you know, huge blocks of time, really that have to deal with epochs and, you know, the slow movement of the constellations over time that mark these ages. Is that a fair statement? That's right. But that's uh, not... That's not why, I mean, that, but I didn't approach it because of that. I, I, it was a different reason altogether, but I'm sure you'll ask me about that later. But yes, uh, uh, it, it, the, the, the astrological ages is, um, is really looking at the vast scope of human history and society mm -hmm. and people, mm -hmm. but not necessarily so much individuals. It's like right. the whole social trend. Whereas it, in contrast, horoscopic astrology is really quite a, you know, like a, inward reflective type of thing. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, it bears repeating because it, it gets thrown up popularly and there's even debate amongst astrologers, but there are different types of zodiac. So why don't we have a little bit of a class and even take a moment for we astrologers to reflect upon the different types of zodiacs and maybe what they offer. But first of all, could you just take a minute? Okay, there's so the tropical zodiac. How do we define the tropical zodiac in Western astrology? Uh, well, that's very simple. The tropical zodiac is anchored to the two equinoxes and two solstice right. points each year. 
So it's very clear. And the and the vernal equinox, which is the one around 21st of March, defines zero degrees Aries. And then right. the the next uh, then there's the, the a solstice defines zero degrees Cancer. And the the other equinox is zero degrees Libra. And then we got zero degrees Capricorn. Right. And so that anchors that zodiac. So it's a very it's a very clear cut and and um, simple system or simple zodiac. Right. And by the way, people should remember, you know, this comes from the Greek word tropic or tropos, which means to turn. So it's this idea. Right. It's the idea of the turning of the seasons or the turning of the solstice points and the equinoxes. And by the way, it's, you know, because I think this is a great podcast to just show because there's always this thing that comes up. Did your sign change? And no, it didn't change because the tropical zodiac hasn't changed. But also, you know, mythologically, there are so many different cultures. They have all sorts of stories around the solstice points and this kind of thing. So it's not just like the tropical zodiac came from nowhere, that it was just like, okay, astrologers made it out of thin air. It was like p- different cultures over millennia have been talking about certain myths that are associated with the tropical zodiac. But but needless to say, that's that's the tropical zodiac. And then, and now, so the tropical zodiac is the zodiac Western astrologers primarily use, but you're also a fusion, you call yourself a Vedic Western fusion astrologer. So you also use the sidereal zodiac. So what is the sidereal zodiac? Uh, well, the sidereal zodiac is the first zodiac. It originated much earlier than the tropical zodiac. The tropical zodiac evolved out of the sidereal zodiac. Now, the sidereal zodiac is actually locked to the stars and the constellations. But uh, the stars and the constellations are slowly moving around the Earth, taking 26,000 years for uh, one complete cycle. So if you are sitting there at the 21st of March every year, looking at the stars, very, very slowly, if you were, if you were to live, say, to 72 years old and you were very um, an observant astronomer, you would notice that when you got to 72, the stars had all shifted one degree compared mm-hmm. to when you were born. And so that, and that it's all got to do. I mean, we don't want to get too technical here. Right, right. To do with the, it's all got to do with the fact that the Earth spins like a top. And if you remember right. a spinning top, it wobbles. Right. And the Earth wobbles, and it takes twenty six thousand years for one cycle of this wobble. And so once you get a cycle, you've got the ability to have a zodiac. So I think we should just get right into it. So again, and this is where this the persistent for lack of a better word, myth. Although I think I hate to use the word myth because myth is always used in a pejorative way. But there was the I think it was the Roman philosopher Sallustius said something along the lines of myths are things that never happen, but always are. So these stories always, even if they don't literally play out, they always do. So I never want to use the word myth in a pejorative way. But this is where this whole concept of did your sign change the drift of the stars, if you will. But that this really gets to how I found you initially which was really fun because you work with these astrological ages and the there's <laughs> the famous song the age of Aquarius would have us believe that it was the dawning of the age of the Aquarius in the 60s but you actually use a different technique to calculate when the age of Aquarius in in your view began 
and it began in the early 15th century. So what's the type of technique that you use to get us that date, and why did the age of Aquarius begin at that time? Uh, now, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, <laughs> so, so basically, I had, an, I had a vision one day. It was in 1987, and what happened was, uh, and this vision didn't appear out of nowhere, uh, about one or two years prior to this, I actually discovered that, the, that uh, in a nearby town, the local government were sponsoring a free course in Vedic astrology mm. uh, in, their, in their adult learning or whatever. So I went and uh, I did that course. And in that course, I was introduced to the sidereal zodiac that the Indians use, which is different than our tropical zodiac. Mm-hmm. And it's necessary to have an understanding of the two different zodiacs to understand how the astrological ages have created. Because until that point, maybe I'd heard the term sidereal zodiac, but I didn't have a clue what it was or how it worked. So anyway, it was only a year or two after that, I was sitting outside one day, and I, I think it was winter, so I was soaking up a bit of sun, and all of a sudden, it just came in my head, when did the age of Aquarius begin? It was just like, I mean, I don't know where these things come from. And then I was just thinking about it. And in over the period of the next half an hour, I worked out in my head how to find this out. And what I, and what I did is I decided that it was stupid looking for the beginning or an end of an age for a very simple reason. If you think of an age that's, say, 2,150 years long, that's a huge long time. So you've got to look for some thread that exists for that long. But when you look back in the world, things are happening all the time that are very different. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you find a thread? Uh, and uh, without going into detail, there was a quirky aspect of Western tropical astro- Western horoscopic astrology that I learnt in about 1974, which was a by the way a Vedic technique, but I didn't mm. realise it. Where it was describing how you could how you could divide each sign like Aries or to, into twelve sub signs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I already knew about decans. Everyone knows about decans. Mm-hmm. You know, so the first decan of Aries is Aries, followed by Leo, and then Sagittarius. But uh, what I've discovered with this one is that there's also what they call what assumptions, where instead of dividing the signs into three, you divide them into twelve. So that the first, like um, the the, the 12 sub-signs of Aries that starts with Aries and goes to Taurus, Gemini, and so on. But when you get to Taurus, the first sub-sign is Taurus, starts with Taurus and ends with Aries. Then when you go to Gemini, the first sub-sign is Gemini and so on. And these sub-signs, by the way, perfectly align with the decans so that the last sub-sign of each decan is the same sign as the decans. So it's a perfect system. It perfectly interfaces with decans. And because I never associated with astrologers for the first 15 years of my life as an astrologer, I had been using this 12-fold division of the signs extensively in Western horoscopic astrology, especially in rectification. Mm. So that I was trying to work out when someone, like I might know someone was born with, uh, say, Taurus rising, but I didn't know whereabouts in that approximate two hours their ascendant was. So if you divided the Taurus into those 12 parts, I could, and it takes about uh, two and a half years for uh, uh, the progressed ascendant, the secondary progressive to move through one of these um, sub signs. 
-hmm. I could then use it like so if all of a sudden there's a Libra subside, well, I would expect that person to get married or divorced. Mm -hmm. So I had been extensively using this. So when I had my realization or my little visualization about when the age occurs <laughs> again, what happened is I just assumed straight away, well, why don't I see if this 12-fold division of the sides, which is called dwad assumptions or dwads, they usually call it dwads. Right, right. I said, do these dwads apply to the ages? Because then I realized that a dwad, or what I call a sub-age, is only about 180 years long. So if I could find the 180-year historical events that sort of coalesce with one sub-sign and then the correct one to the next sub-sign, then I could work out when the age of Aquarius approximately arrive, arrived. Does that make sense? Yes. So, okay, here we go. When did the age of Aquarius begin? You know, I, you know, I think I gave you the, the but what, what, what in your opinion, you know, this is it. When did the age of Aquarius begin? Okay. Well, before I say that, let me say it's not an opinion. It's based uh, on research. Like, okay, uh, let, okay. let me explain to you. When I did this, I assumed when I went on this venture, like after my realization, I assumed that the age of Aquarius had arrived in the 1960s and 70s like right. everyone else. Okay. Right. So it was just, okay, that was fine. So what I did is I, I for six weeks, this is pre-internet, so I had an old set of encyclopedias. So I got out and I, <laughs> I, I, I read about... You know, I read about the Renaissance. I read mm -hmm. about the age of maritime exploration and mm -hmm. the scientific revolution and the population. I, all these kind of things. And I put it on a piece of cardboard, uh, like a, like a, like uh, in correct, like a, a, to time, to, to the correct years. Like I was thought, okay, there was the age of maritime explanation. There was this, there was this, there was this. There's the nuclear age, etc. And then another piece of paper, I put the dwads that should exist at the end of Pisces mm -hmm. and the beginning of the age of Aquarius. And by moving these two sheets of cardboard, I could then try to find a fit that would say when, when like all the historical events that were lasting for a couple of hundred years would line up with the correct dwad. Okay. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So yes. when I did this, it made no sense at all that the age of Aquarius arrived in the 1960s or 70s. Nothing <laughs> lined up. There was, there was no way I could line up major historical events with these dwads. And then all of a sudden one day, I really moved it a long way, and all of a sudden, click, 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 all the dwads archetypally lined up with historical events. Mm -hmm. Like Capricorn all of a sudden lined up uh, with the scientific revolution of the 16th century. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the age of maritime exploration lined up correctly but the one that the, the the actual key historical event that did it for me was the renaissance mm. uh the the renaissance lined up basically at uh like towards the end of the age of pisces or what at the end of pisces mm. but when i did this they all lined up and uh that took me six weeks so and that and uh, what that told me very clearly was that the age of Aquarius arrived in the 15th century, but I didn't know whereabouts in the 15th century. I knew mm -hmm. that somewhere between 1400 and 1499, the age of Aquarius arrived. There's just, it's not an opinion. It's really just facts. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Just, you you know, know, the 
And the thing that really got me when, you know, I was, I was, see, obviously I didn't do any of the technical stuff you did, but I was just thinking, okay, Gutenberg, that was such the invention of the printing press. That was, you know, the idea, I mean, we we take it for granted, but the ability to read and have, you know, I remember I had a, because I went to music school, I did both of my degrees in classical music, and I remember I had a professor and he's like, well, you guys remember that books were like these huge books that didn't really move, like people, like, it would sort of like be maybe a priest in a church and like had a huge book and he went and opened it up. I mean, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't this, I, there wasn't, there weren't printing presses. I mean, it was, you know, that. So th- this is such an Aquarian thing, like the hot off the printing press. I mean, the, the idea that ideas can, you know, transmute and, you know, spread quickly. I mean, this was so Aquarian in my mind, but then I'm thinking, wait, but we're told, okay, maybe the age of Aquarius began in the 60s or it's still yet to come. You know, we're not even there yet. It just didn't make sense to me, logically speaking. But But you're like, no, I've got the proof that it really, this is it. And you're quite right that your perception about the Gutenberg Press is widely spoken about. It, what the Gutenberg Press did with the printing of books, all of a sudden, people or people who could read all around the Europe could all of a sudden experience and witness different ideas and concepts. Everything mm-hmm. it was it was it was stimulating their intellects. This is what Aquarius does. It's an intellectual sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and, if, and from memory, the Gutenberg Press was invented within 20 years of the start of the Age of Aquarius. Uh, and that's only right. one. There was, the Age of Aquarius wasn't just started by the Gutenberg Press. There was many, many um, very major historical events that happened that a lot of people overlook because they don't realize that the Age of Aquarius arrived. But within, for example, within one year, of the actual year of the arrival of the age of Aquarius, two hugely major events happened in in opposite sides of the world. I I don't know if you if you heard about that famous Chinese admiral. I think he was a hmm. he was a eunuch admiral, and he had massive fleets that went around exploring uh, uh, Africa, and even some people say made it to Australia and even San Francisco. Hmm. Uh, well, within a year of the beginning of the Aquarius, that his whole fleet got burnt to the ground and every book and description about his voyages were destroyed. Oh, wow. But that same year, the Portuguese had been sending ships down the coast of Africa. They had sent 12 ships down over, I don't know, a 20-year period or more, and they would get to a certain cape. Now, I just can't remember the name of the cape. Maybe it was Cape I just can't remember. Mm-hmm. But this cape was the most southern latitude that Ptolemy had put in his book on geography. Wow. And so what happened was that all the sailors believed that once you went past this cape, you fell off the end of the world. Right. Right. But within a year, so all these ships going down at the end of the age of Pisces couldn't make it past this cape. But the first ship that went down after the arrival of the age of Aquarius sailed past that cape, opening up the whole discovery of the world which is just as Aquarian and discovered the new world if ever an Aquarian event has ever occurred it was the discovery of the Americas so uh, and there's many many more major historical things that have happened uh, since the turn of the ages Mm. so how have your ideas you know I'm not always the best person to key in on this but how have your ideas been received by other astrologers 
Um, I was very surprised um, <laughs> because when I initially worked out when the age of Aquarius arrived, I thought I should keep it hidden. <laughs> oh, I think I was reading this. Yeah, you, you thought you thought that it might get stolen or something, right? That's right. But, yeah. but, but the, the, the complete opposite happened. No one's interested, especially uh, especially astrologers, people uh, and even non-astrologers. Uh, I remember in my first 10 years, <laughs> it took me 10 years to reconcile myself to the fact that uh, what you what people don't realize is that humans are innately conservative. Even if they're at the head of the most progressive political party you name, they are still conservative by nature. We're not talking politics. We're talking nature. And, right. Uh, and that's why that's why Charles Darwin was ridiculed when he came out with evolution. Right. Humans, humans are conservative and astrologers are human <laughs> and astrologers are conservative and they don't like new ideas. They don't right. like new approaches. Uh, and I uh, I mean, I find that. The kind of people that, that, sorry, the kind of astrologers that relate to my work are more like astrologers like yourself that don't have an official position in an organization that aren't got a reputation uh, for some reason. <laughs> they, they, those astrologers do not like my uh, approach to the astrological ages. Uh, but uh, run-of-the-mill astrologers uh, seem to be not only quite open to it, often get quite enthusiastic about it. Yeah, no, it is interesting. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah, that, that, that seems to fit. I mean, and I, I'm very open to different ideas and that, that can actually get me in trouble, not because of criticism towards me, but I actually, well, I mean, a little bit about just, you know, I don't have my chart publicly online or anything, but I have a Gemini moon conjunct north node out of bounds in the eighth house. So I, it's like, I'm always like curious and I'm always like way out with new ideas. So sometimes I'm always interested in too many new ideas, but it was, it was, yeah, it is interesting to think about that. I, I really, it, cause you know, my background in classical music, so much was happening in that period musically, like we were really getting the beginnings of what would become tonal music, you know, and in the, in, in the early, you know, um, in Renaissance music coming out of the medieval period where it was all kind of chants and sort of basic polyphony and, you know, this kind of stuff, not to put that stuff down, but really the precepts of what we would hear now as modern music, you know, that was happening, you know, the was happening around that time. So it was just like when you, when I was reading about your theory, I was like, wow, this really makes sense. So, and, and okay, well, so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just laughing. I was just getting back to your Gemini moon. <laughs> uh, in, in 2005, when I attended uh, a conference in Maryland on Hellenistic astrology run by Robert Schmidt, mm -hmm. at one point in that conference, they asked everyone in the room that had a Gemini moon to put oh, their dear. hand up. Oh, and it God. seems that a far greater proportion than one-twelfth of that room put their hand up. Uh, and then whoever said that said that that traditionally um, they that uh, well-known or famous astrologers often had their moon in Gemini. And just for your interest, my moon is also in Gemini. Oh, well, there you go. So that I mean, that that's why the strong connection then that I'm more interested in the <laughs> that's, you know, because I really did. You know, I, I was very interested in what you're doing. I mean, I think it's very fascinating. So it's not it's so it's also you're saying the the. Um, 
the sub H's, but it's also heliacal rising. And could you explain a little bit about what that is um, and That's how right. that? Yes, go ahead. Well, yeah, yeah yes, the, the way that the ages have been um, calibrated for the last few thousand years, which is why they're so incorrect, is that they've been based on the fact that at the 21st of March on the vernal equinox, mm -hmm. the sun is at zero degrees, uh, zero degrees Aries, right? Mm -hmm. And right. it's, and it is, it has been and remains sitting in the constellation of Pisces. So this right. is why people are saying, ah, well, we are in the age of Pisces because the vernal point or the sun will not enter that constellation of Aquarius till around about the year 2600. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is that this, you can't see, like in the vernal equinox, you can't see that the sun is in the constellation of Pisces, because right. once the sun comes up in the constellation of Pisces, you can't see a star. Mm -hmm. and, this, and this technique is really what you call a mathematical technique, and it was invented by a very famous ancient Greek astronomer, Hipparchus, mm -hmm. in the second century BC. So... He was the one that in modern times discovered that the stars slowly rotate around the world or seemingly rotate around the world in a 26,000-year period. And so he decided that he would use the vernal point, which was a mathematical point, because the Greeks were spearheading modern mathematics, and mm -hmm. they could do this. They mm -hmm. didn't need to see a star to know where it was. Mm -hmm. But prior to that point, this was unheard of. The, the, if you go and read any book on archaeoastronomy, you will discover that everything was visual. So it, Right, right. So in other words, the, the, the appearance of a star coming up over the horizon or culminating at the midheaven or disappearing in the western horizon, these was where the action was, not the mm -hmm. mathematical point. So what happens at the 21st of March, if you... Go, and you can do this, anyone can do this at any vernal equinox on the 21st of March. If you go outside, say, an hour and a half before the sun rises, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's the sky all dark, full of stars, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what you will see coming up on the eastern, uh, eastern horizon at the vernal, right now, the last constellation you will see coming up before the light of the sun obliterates the stars is the constellation of Aquarius. Mm-hmm. And what this does is that the difference between the two systems, in other words, the different timing, is about half an age or 1,100 years. Mm -hmm. So the age of Aquarius arrives about 1,100 years earlier than the sun located in the zodiacal constellation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is all wonderful. The thing that really, when I was, because, you know, I read through different myths and even modern reinterpretations of myths, but when, when you're really, whether you're reading Ovid or, you know, whatnot, or um, there, there are all sorts of different modern retellings of the myths, but when they start talking about the constellations, that's how they're referring to it, how they visually see the constellations, not so much the exact mathematical calculation. So, so what does that give us to sort of, you know, maybe even have that kind of visual enchantment with the constellations as opposed to say, okay, this is the exact mathematical calculation, but we can't see it because the sun's burning it out. Like what, what does, what are the implications of that interpretively and even mystically? Uh, well, if you want to go into the deeper interpretations, 
you should read a book called Hamlet's Mill. Okay. Uh, it was two academics, uh, an American and German academic. I think it was published in 1960 or 70. And they really claim that all ancient, almost exclusively, are about the astrological ages. Mm. Uh, well, and, and, sorry, could you could, could you repeat the name of that again? Sorry. Hamlet, like in you know, Hamlet, like in uh, Hamlet, Hamlet, sorry. Hamlet's yeah. apostrophe at Mill, M I double L. Oh, okay, wonderful. And uh, it's basically uh, it's an academic uh, treatise, really on basically stating that all um, you know all the mythology that came out of the Middle East and uh, Europe from thousands and thousands of years ago really are just discussing the comings and goings of these ages mm. uh, uh, and uh, but yeah no I, I actually as far as um, I mean I am a visual astrologer too I mean I can go outside at night and I can recognize each of the 12 zodiacal constellations mm-hmm. uh, if I'm outside at night, I can tell the sign of the moon just by looking at it, mm-hmm. uh, both by a combination of the which zodiacal constellation it's in, and also it's uh, how much of the moon is being lit up or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and visual astrology, I mean, really was the original astrology. Sure. Just the same way that visual astronomy was the astronomy of ancients before the Greeks. The Greeks spearheaded modernity in the world. In mm-hmm. preparation for our age of Aquarius, mm-hmm. uh, because that those Greeks were existing in the sub age of Aquarius, in the Pisces age. Ah, okay, so each, right. Yeah, uh, because each age, people don't realize this, that each age begins with a sub age that's going to start the next age. Mm-hmm. And that's why everyone looks for, back to the Greeks. And saying, wow, you know, democracy and Socrates and <laughs> all these people, they were living in a little preview oh, of interesting. at the beginning of the age of Pisces, telling us what to expect in the, uh, in the following Aquarius age coming thousands of years later. That is very, very interesting. So, so what, what were, so we've talked a lot about the, age of Aquarius what were some of the other ages like so you had Pisces prior to that what what was just I know it's like we're talking thousands and thousands of years but could you give a little bit of flavor of you know a couple of the prior ages so you had Aquarius and then Pisces what what was the age of Pisces uh well actually now listen if you get actually I should have brought up my powerpoint on this I wonder if I've got it here wait on let me have a look lectures uh let's see if I can get it economic historians intro intro uh predictions astronomy oh well no i can't say see so what what you're sort of saying is you you want to know what happened in the pisces age the main thing that happened in the pisces age is that the three major religions appeared right right christianity islam and buddhism Mm -hmm. and other ones too it was the it was pisces is the religious sign right okay uh i mean there's a lot more to it than that maybe if i can see Maybe that is it. I actually have, yeah. I have done over the years uh, many talks, but I actually no, I can't quite say it. And I, and I did do one that I am going to do a video of at some stages that's talking about um, ages, but uh, maybe it's in here. No, 
That's okay. So, all right. So, I think people get that Pisces. It's the fish, Christianity, religion. I mean, but then, okay. So you have Pisces, and then prior to that was Aries. Aries. So but, hey, we, what, but, but you you are making a fundamental mistake without realizing. Okay, sorry. <laughs> because uh, because what happens is this is what this is what uh, upsets research in astrology. Just in an a just it, not just the ages is that if you go into research with assumptions. Those assumptions are going to stop you finding the reality. And okay. so astrologers have an assumption that there's an age in Aquarius where Aquarius uh, themes dominate. Prior to that, there was an age of Pisces where Pisces themes dominate. Prior to that was the age of Aries. Where they, but that is actually not how it works at all. Okay. Well, this ages is good. Are, so that, okay. ages, yeah, ages are not bricks in a wall. They are waves. Okay. Okay. And, and the and the waves, each wave interfaces with the previous wave and the mm -hmm. following wave. So I'll give you an example. We are in the age of Aquarius, and even though you did previously ask me when the age of Aquarius arrived, it was in 1433. But when the age of Aquarius arrived in 1433, it was the age of Pisces had just peaked because at the end of the age of Pisces, was the 700 years Pisces age decan and the 180 year Pisces subage. So all of a sudden, leading up to 1433, you've got this crescendo of Pisces there. Mm. Then all of a sudden, Aquarius appears. But Aquarius is just the new kid on the block. Right. Pisces in 1433 is far, far stronger than Aquarius. Right. Unbelievably stronger. And the, and, and, the Pisces will interact with Aquarius for the whole of the age of Aquarius, and Pisces will be stronger than Aquarius at least for the first half of the age of Aquarius. Oh and wow! Even and even in the second half, it's going to Pisces will be at a minimum equivalent in strength to Aquarius. So mm. if you really want to experience Aquarius at its peak, we have to wait to the Capricorn age. Wow. We, we, we are still, so really, and, and how I say this, there's a number of ways of saying it. I really, what I say is that the correct way of defining our current age is that we're not in the Aquarius age, which was followed, which followed the Pisces age. We are in the Pisces Aquarius age, mm. which followed the, which followed the Aries Pisces age. Mm. Does that wow. make sense? Yes, it's it like, really does. So I'm glad. Thanks. I'm glad I made the mistake so we could get the clarity on that. I mean, that's a huge point. I mean, to think of it more like a wave as opposed to like a block that you or like a brick you place. Well, I actually happen to live in a brick temple. So it's like it's not like a temple. You just put a brick in there and then that's it. Wow. OK, so, you know what? Sorry, go ahead. Well, and just for your interest's sake, the real christening of the age of Aquarius even though the age of Aquarius arrived in 1433 and made dramatic inroads already, you know, sure. it was still just its introduction. It was just breaking the ice. It's what you would call its christening, if I can borrow a Christian concept, not that it matters, <laughs> but its christening is actually this century, uh, the end of this wow. century. Uh, wow. and the end of this century is what you call the christening, where it's the strongest uh, period of Aquarius to date that we'll ever experience in the age. It's, it's dramatically stronger than anything else we've ever experienced in the last 500 years. Uh, and that really 
it really it really rules the period that starts in uh, 2029 and it lasts for uh, about 120 years, but its most power will be around about the, the last two decades of this century. So we won't see it. Uh, but just for those people who are interested, there is a preview to this christening. And we're in that preview now. The period from December 2014 for 10 years is right down deep within it is a, what they call, what I call an Aquarius microage, uh, Deccan. We are in the preview of this massive 120 year christening of the age of Aquarius that peaks around 2089. Uh, and that will be something to see, but we get to see a preview right now. Wow. So I want to go back because I think most people listening to this, when we think there's no way around it, when it, when anybody hears Age of Aquarius, they think of the song, the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So how do you interpret that song in the context of astrology? I was reading that it was in a Scorpio sub age. So what what just, you know, humor me like what? Because well, it, well, it was at the peak. It was basically the sub ages are waves too. every every sub period follows the same format as the ages. So what happened was the Scorpio sub-age ran from uh, 1791 to 1970, OK? Mm -hmm. So it's weak at the beginning. It builds up to a maximum. But it, it, but at, while it's building up, the dominant influence from the sub-age was the previous Sagittarius sub-age. Mm. So what happened was and the Sagittarius sub-age, you can see that manifesting quite clearly in that period, 1791 to 1970, as it was peaking, because that's when we had the world population explosion and economic miracle. I mean, it, really, there has never right. been a time like it. It's it's Sagittarius, Sagittarius, Sagittarius. But mm -hmm. at the same time that Sagittarius is doing its expansion, Scorpio is building up, building up, building up to its peak in 1970. Mm. And when you and and you have to remember, Scorpio rules revolution. And Aquarius mm -hmm. rules revolution. Mm -hmm. And so that's why that it was a re everyone realized that there was a massive cultural revolution in the 1960s and 1970s. Yeah. Because you get the lineup between two revolutionary signs, like the revolutionary sign of Aquarius with Scorpio, you're going to get de definitely uh, revolutionary times. Yeah, very, very. The word comes to me revolution, but potent. I mean, po that's very. Right very potent times and, wow. and the conclusion and the conclusion of that scorpio revolution uh appears just before midway of next century in other words we remain under the influence of what you call the scorpio sub-age overflow we're hmm. in the we're in the libran sub-age now but the, the but scorpio is far more powerful than libra at this point of time and uh scorpio is still creating huge social discord and, and, and sort of uh, upheaval in the world as basically that revolution of the 60s and 70s keeps spreading out. It hasn't right. disappeared. Right. Wow. Mm. Incredible stuff. You know, I'm actually interested. <laughs> you know, this is probably the, the most temporally wide-ranging interview I've ever done because it's just like wow we're going over thousands of years and this and that but you know you you have your own um astrological practice yourself where you do 
consult for individuals. So you call yourself a Vedic Western fusion astrologer. So those are, you know, two different types of astrology. And we touched on that earlier, you know, very simply. So bear with me for people who are knowledgeable about this, but for people just kind of coming into astrology, how do you use those two different kinds of traditions, Vedic and Western? Uh, the good, the best allegory to mention is like, if you put an eye patch on, okay, you're, <laughs> you're behaving like a Western astrologer, okay? If you move that eye patch to the other eye, you're now behaving like a Vedic astrologer. Mm -hmm. If you take that eye patch up and look with both eyes, you're a Vedic Western fusion astrologer because you mm. can see with both eyes. They don't, uh, the kind of information that a Western horoscope provides is not the information that a Vedic horoscope provides and vice versa. Mm -hmm. They're like two cameras looking at a person. One's looking maybe a front on view and one's a side on view. They're still looking at the same subject, but they are looking at it from a totally different perspective. And that's the best way to describe the difference between Vedic and Western astrology. They're, they're two perspectives of this one object. You know, that's interesting, so, you know, not necessarily related to astrology itself, but, you know, you, we keep, we're talking about subjects, like when you're looking at something. How much do you feel that we as astrologers have to do with the phenomena that surrounds us? And what I mean by that is, you know, how much of what we do is subjective versus just objective reality insofar as like, take, for example, if one has a horary chart, you know, the, the astrologer is always in the chart or somehow the way that we look at a chart always has to do with, in some sense, how we look at it at all. Um, well, yes, I mean, I, I think the only way to deal with that is through experience, that the longer mm -hmm. you do astrology, the, the easier it gets to separate you from what you're dealing with and your biases mm -hmm. and prejudice. Uh, mm -hmm. You'll never totally eradicate it. But um uh, uh it, it's yes it, it it just comes i think with practice and perseverance sure. and sure. Uh, astrology, and astrology will never be perfect anyway i mean uh i mean I, I one of the things which amuses me most of all is when i go to my local astrology association meetings very occasionally um uh and when the astrologers get up there they actually imply that the horoscope is telling you everything about the situation which is totally absurd mm -hmm. because I could then come up and get a Vedic horoscope on that same situation and show them a whole mass of information right. that they haven't talked about. Do you right. follow what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. So, so, so you always lose dimensions in astrology. No astrology, including my astrological ages, can capture the whole picture. It's mm -hmm. just a perspective mm -hmm. and a perspective is always limited. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't seen that perspective before, you don't experience the limitation. You experience the expansion of new knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, this is actually an interesting turn. I didn't, you know, that, that's why I love doing these interviews. You don't always know where they're going to go. But one of my favorite books of all time is Moment of Astrology by Jeffrey Cornelius. And he talks about it in one part of the book. Sometimes you, you really do have to get a different take, like, a, you're, you, like almost like a different sh shot of like if you're filming something. Like you do have to look at the chart from different perspectives. It's not just 
well, they, somebody gets up and this is it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, really? Yes. It's like, dear God, like how, how is that even possible? Like, this is the one perspective. And then that's it. like, how, like, it's like, it's like, I took this one photo of this tree. That's it. This is the... That's right. You, you, you have captured it. That's why I've often thought that one day there's going to be a council or some sort of group of astrologers that each specialize in a particular field and then what will happen someone will come up with the topic and every astrologer that's a specialist in their field will put their input in because uh, right. one of the limitations i experience is that because i focus so much on the astrological ages i've had to virtually ignore traditional mundane astrology and that's a big yeah. shortcut i have because mm. uh because traditional mundane astrology such as you know uh, the outer planets and all these different things they also do affect big picture astrology, but I just haven't got the ability. You, you know, what is it? The a jack of all trades is a master of none. You, 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 you can't be you can't be a specialist astrology in all areas of astrology. It's just impossible. Right. It's like being a right. heart surgeon and a brain surgeon at the same time. Right. You know, it's interesting because this seems to happen in interviews, but can you define astrology in a few words? <laughs> uh, astrology is the correlation of, uh, of, well, it's a correlation of astronomical events, re whether they're real or fictitious, with our life and the life we experience in this world. Okay. It's, it's really is the correlation. In other words, uh, you know, whether it's Chinese astrology, whether it's mm -hmm. Vedic astrology, Western, whatever, uh, if some planet or something happens or the Earth turns or something, there's anything at all that can be has an astronomical sort of like reality of something moving or whatever, then that can be related to our lives or the life in the world somehow. There's a correlation. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, to me, that's what how I view astrology the astrology does not cause anything. It's a correlation. You know, and that, that sort of, I think, brings me to my next question. But you just said astrology doesn't cause anything. I mean, I think you mean the planets don't literally cause anything. But but how do you approach the fate and free will question? This is it's kind of an obsession of mine. For me, I don't know why. But, you know, how do you, you know, is are things fated? Do we have free will? Is it a combination of both? How do you weigh in on that? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I think it's a combination of both, but it doesn't interest me. And I'll tell you oh, why. Oh, okay. It, Interesting. It really, is, it really is an old religious argument. It comes from the early Christian people around 400, 500 AD. Hmm. It was a big, big deal because they hated astrology because it implied that everything was fated, but they get to have their gods and their religious mm -hmm. creeds and all this sort of stuff. Uh, the fate and free will thing, I never spend any time whatsoever <laughs> on it because it's not a it's not a reality in my life because mm. i deal with fate and free will i've been dealing with it since i've been studying astrology since the early 70s and what i see that it is it's a it, it seems like a combination of both however i was watching a most fascinating video by scientists about three weeks ago and they were claiming that there is no such thing as free will because everything ultimately can be devolved down to a mathematical equation that tells you what anything's going to happen at any time. And so they were claiming that there's no such thing that, that free will is just a fix, uh, is a fiction that we have created and that everything is kind of fated. My 
take on it is that it doesn't matter. It really <laughs> doesn't. It doesn't matter to the quality of my life whether everything or some of it is fated and some of it's free will. I mean, how does it affect it? The quality of my life's got nothing to do with that issue because I live my life uh, and I enjoy my life. Uh, so, and I feel fulfilled. It's like, uh, it's mm -hmm. really, it's more really of an, it's an intellectual argument that came out of early Christianity. Mm. You know, that's actually quite therapeutic for me to hear this, that, you know, the, the, well, I think I always think of the poet Rilke, the idea, like, I beg you to love the question, what does the question tell us at all? Like this question of fate and free will, like, why are we asking it at all? That's and that, actually, yes, that's actually, because, is, because the ultimate experiences I have in my, my life is, which is when I meditate and go inside, mm -hmm. the last thing you would want to intrude in there was a thought. A thought just corrupts it. You right. know, ulti the ultimate experience that I have in my life is an experience that there is no thoughts there. It's a it's a fast thoughts are just gross. And so uh, and the level of thought, yes, faith and free will. Well, why would I want to put my attention to something that will never give me any fulfillment or contentment in my life? And if anything, take me away from it. But, you know, I, I, I do. It's an interesting question, like as far as yeah, as far as an intellectual exercise, I don't mind if I come across someone who writes about it or does a video on it. I I, I would watch it, um, but it's not uh, critical in my life. You know that is absolutely wonderful, and I think quite helpful to me. <laughs> so, and I think you know I love this. What did you say? Words are gross, but <laughs> well, I, it's not just words. Words. I, ideas really are gross. I think you need them, but, but they're just ideas. Ideas don't lead you to the ultimate uh, contentment or experience you can have in your life. You know, uh, you know one yeah. of the things that's so interesting for me recently too is some of the writers I read, they, they and they, some have actually explicitly said this, that they're trying to really get underneath the words. They're just like, you know what, like, even though they're writers, they're like, what's, what is something beyond these words? You know, they're really, that's what they're um, going for. So that's right. isn't that, that's really something, isn't it? Um, it is. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, I like astrology for its intellectual nature, mm -hmm. but the, the most superb intellectual insight is nowhere near the experience of pure life that I experience. Mm. And so I put it in context. It's like, uh, uh, but we're not, you know, I can't sit down and meditate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I'm not going to because right. uh, we live in this world. So everything's a combination. So, uh, I, I mean, I often think about that fate and free will with my clients. I have told my clients that if you go and do this, this disastrous consequence will happen. Now, the curious thing is sometimes they will go ahead and do it and the disastrous consequence happens. And in other times, they won't, and the disastrous consequence doesn't happen. So you sort of think, well, you come back to that fate and free will. Was it fated that they would follow their fate, or was it fated that they wouldn't follow their fate? You know, you can mm -hmm. tie yourself up. Right, <laughs> right, and oh, my God. Yeah, and so what, but where does it lead? What's the, what's the point of it, really? Yeah. You know, I think I, I've mentioned it a couple times before in various venues, but there was a lady, she used to run a bookstore here in town, and we were just talking about books, and she happened to love the writer Truman Capote, and she was talking about, 
you know, she had read this book of his. And then she told me after I finished reading the book, the feeling that it gave me was so extraordinary that I locked myself in my car so nobody would dare interrupt me. So, yeah, that I think that's kind of what maybe you're talking about, just that experience and then the words getting to something more and like hopefully leaving the words at some point. But it's a little bit like if you. If you if you were, say go out and you saw some stunning sunrise or something, mm-hmm. you, your your mind kind of stops, mm. you know, and you're just enjoying the beauty of it all. So it's like I mean I'm quite glad in my life that I have astrology for my intellect and the ability to experience the stunning beauty of life. There is nothing more stunning than life. Mm. Uh, astrology doesn't even compete with it. But mm. I'm glad I, I'm glad I've got both. Right. <laughs> oh, Terry, this is absolutely wonderful. So, do you have anything? You were coming to the end. Do, anything else you want to add? Um, you got coming up, or just? I mean, that that last, those last few thoughts, I think, are just. You know, even though I said thoughts are gross, I mean, I think that you know, what last words are absolutely wonderful. But anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, I think. I mean, I've really enjoyed this interview. Um, I think you've asked some very pertinent uh, questions, um, and. Uh, I sort of think that it's if you're going to be an astrologer, that the average astrologer is just going to be an astrologer, but probably 15 or 20 percent of astrologers will go on to be research astrologers. And mm-hmm. if you're going to be a research astrologer, like uh, actually, this is a good thing to finish up on. I have to call myself a research astrologer, mm-hmm. but I would more like to say that. I would call myself the reluctant astrologer <laughs> okay. because I never intended to do this. Mm. I never I never wanted to write a book. I never wanted to do talks. I never wanted to have podcasts. I never wanted to produce videos. I was just an astrologer minding my own business when all of a sudden one day I said, when did the age of Aquarius begin? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then... And then once I discovered, I felt kind of compelled to tell people about this, that, wow, this mm-hmm. is an amazing discovery. Uh, so, yes, I mean, in many ways, uh, I'm the reluctant astrologer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel, uh, and interestingly enough, some uh, academics talk about this. Uh, there's a, I, I heard the most stunning talk by Professor Stephen Greenblatt from Harvard University in January when I attended the Jaipur Literary Festival uh, in India. And he Mm. was just talking about a very important component of the age of Aquarius arriving in the 15th century. And he was saying that the the intellectual approach of the age of Aquarius wasn't just from the printing press, but it was also because uh, one of the humanists had discovered a poem by Lucretius just a few years before the age of Aquarius arrived. And Lucretius was an Epicurean, and he followed the philosophy of the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus. But this poem by Lucretius was the most heretical document in existence. <laughs> it, it said there was no God, that this is, you know, that this life is really, you've really got to make the most of this life because this is it. It was, and it just went on with the most progressive outline about how you should leave, lead a life. But this poem was the best example of Latin poetry in existence. So it was used throughout Italy in their schools to teach their students Latin. 
Mm. And the, and they never realized that this was the most heretical writing in existence. <laughs> but basically, Steve, Professor Stephen Greenblatt said that uh, this poem really transformed the intellectual milieu of the Renaissance era. It, it brought, and it, he didn't know about the Age of Aquarius, but it really intellectually brought in the Age of Aquarius as much as the printing press. But he was talking about the little humanist that actually found this poem. He mm-hmm. said he never knew, he never intended to find this. It just seemed like his whole life was just designed to find this poem. Mm. And even, even Professor Stephen Greenblatt said that when he was 19, he came across this poem and actually bought it and read it. And he couldn't believe that after all these decades, he was back on it. And so there is magic. You know what I mean? Mm. There is magic mm. in life. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I look back on my discovery of the Age of Aquarius, and it, it seems so unreal and incongruous that I was able to do it. Mm. It really it, uh, to To have done it, you would have had to have understood what a thumbs is. But I did. <laughs> you, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I never met any other astrologer that, that had, uh, and that uh, also, uh, uh, for some reason, maybe because I'm Aquarius rising. That's I what I was just going to say. You're Aquarius rising. <laughs> that's right. So, so I had the detachment to, like, what I discovered with a lot of astro- astrologers tr- often do research to try to prove their point, where it's right. better to do the research to see what the point sure. is. Sure, sure. You know what I mean? And I follow it. For some reason, my nature was, because I was quite prepared when I said to myself, I wonder if I can use Dwada Sumsas to rectify the ages. My my assumption that time was if that didn't work, I'd look at something else. Right. You right. follow? So you you really yeah. can't you really gotta be open minded to do research. Right. But um anyway, that that, that was very good. I looked through your list of questions. It seems like you <laughs> Most of the issues we got uh, a lot. Yeah, th- this is this is really great. So um, thank you so much for coming on, Terry. So people, you can go to www.macro-astrology.com to check out more of Terry. And I'm going to sign off. And this is from the Star Love Podcast. And remember, if you love the stars, they'll love you back. On the next episode of the Star Love Podcast, we welcome astrologer, choreographer, and dancer Amelia Earhart. We discuss Amelia's innovative dance and choreography career, her work in astrology, and the affinity she shares with her namesake. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and if you're interested in sponsoring a future podcast, email Intermakeup Business Manager James at james at intermakeup.net. To support the continued production of the Star Love Podcast, visit intermakeup.net in the Leave a Tip, Make a Wish section.